This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, fighting against ageism in the workplace and the marketplace. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. The concept of a 15-minute neighborhood comes to the fore. And do you think about food too much of the time? It's called food noise. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Aspartame that's found in everything from diet sodas to chewing gum is expected to be declared a possible carcinogen on July 14th. The World Health Organization's cancer research arm will declare the artificial sweetener as possibly carcinogenic to humans. The ruling is intended to assess whether something is a potential hazard or not based on all the published evidence. It does not take into account how much of a product a person can safely consume. Since 1981, aspartame has been considered safe to consume within accepted daily limits. There's been conflicting information on aspirin for older adults with many still prescribed low doses to prevent heart attacks and strokes. But now new research indicates continuous use can cause potential health problems like anemia. The Australian and U.S. study found that older adults with anemia faced risks like cognitive decline and fatigue. However, there's evidence aspirin is beneficial if a patient has a cardiac event or a stroke. Junior doctors in England will strike for five consecutive days later this month in what's thought to be the longest action in the history of the health service. The government says the 35% pay rise demand is unreasonable and that the strikes risk patient safety. The government is offering 5%. Thousands of appointments and operations will be disrupted as more senior doctors fill in and emergency and critical care is prioritized. President Joe Biden is now using a CPAP machine to treat his sleep apnea. Since 2008, the president has disclosed his history with sleep apnea in thorough medical reports. The now 80-year-old confirmed he's using one after he emerged with markings on his face. A source says that while Biden's use of the machine is a new development, it was not prompted by a new medical condition or environmental conditions. If you're South Korean, you just got younger and you aren't lying about your age. A new law aligns that nation's age counting methods with international standards. It scraps one traditional system that deemed South Koreans a year old at birth counting time in the womb. And another that counted everyone is aging by a year on the first day of January instead of on their birthdays. The switch to age counting based on birth date took effect this week. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. 
Affordable housing was the key issue in this week's Toronto by-election that swept Olivia Chow into the mayor's chair. Now, real estate giant Remax is getting behind an idea that could deliver more of it. The 15-minute neighborhood is a place where residents are a 15-minute walk bike, or transit ride away from all their daily needs. I talked with veteran urban designer Ken Greenberg. A 15-minute neighborhood is a new name, a new branding for the way we all lived in cities like Toronto or cities around North America or other parts of the world before World War II, before we fell so in love with the car that we spread ourselves out. We separated where we live from where we work, from where we shop, from where we went for recreation. And we went from parking lot to garage to surface parking lot in search of everything we needed in our daily lives. And the term 15-minute cities describes the fact that within a 15-minute walk, people had pretty much everything they needed for most aspects of their daily life within reach. It was revived as a term or branded as a term by Anne Hidalgo, the mayor of Paris, who used it as a slogan to win re-election. She called it Le Paris d'un quart d'heure, the quarter hour Paris. And what she was saying with that is that we had to get back to that kind of convenience for a host of reasons, including mental health, physical health, convenience, time in our lives, uh, environmental sustainability, affordability, all of those things. And so it has become newly popular, but it's Uh, an old idea. It's an old idea. Uh, It also reminds me a lot of, uh, in the, the 60s or 70s, Jane Jacobs and this idea of Toronto being a city of neighborhoods. Isn't that the same thing? It's exactly the same thing. And and the neighborhoods that Jane, who was a dear friend and colleague for all the years since we both arrived in Toronto in 1968 until her death, what she was responding to was the pre-war neighborhoods of Toronto, where she lived on Albany Avenue in the Annex and others, where if you look at them, they all had streetcars, they had main streets with shops, they had dispersed uh, within them, uh, schools, the schoolyards doubled as parks. Um, you had local daycare in the older neighborhoods. You still had corner stores. You had everything that people now talk about as part of the 15-minute neighborhood within easy reach. Why is that something that would be so good for uh, a city that people can age in place or age in the right place? Well, one of the things it has is something else that Jane Jacobs talked about, which is diversity. So instead of having a repetition of a single form of housing suitable for one demographic over a large area, typically those older neighborhoods had already a mix of single-family houses. Um, They had semis, they had row houses, they had fourplexes, sixplexes small walk-up apartment buildings. So at every stage in your life, if you needed a small apartment, a young person just starting out or a senior wanting to move out of his or her home, um, you had the opportunity to stay in the neighborhood. 
And of course, affordability is a, is a key to that. Remax just came out with a report on this. Were you surprised that a real estate company like that uh, is coming out in favor of a concept like this? I was very surprised. Remax contacted me and two of my colleagues to help them put this report together. And I think it's a case of enlightened self-interest on the part of Remax. Remax is one of the largest real estate brokers in the world. They're in 140 companies. They're a Canadian company originally. And the reason what led them to this is on the 15-minute neighborhood aspect, it's what the people they were selling and leasing real estate to their, their clientele was asking for. This report is really aimed at two audiences primarily. Uh, one of them is the development industry, and Remax is actually closer to the eventual users of real estate than the developers are, because they're the ones who are signing the leases and uh, making the sales. And they're saying to the development industry, you should pay attention to this. This, this is what people want. And they're also saying to government, you have to get back in the game in a serious way. This is really interesting. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. That was urban designer Ken Greenberg. He was not a paid consultant on that Remax report. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Weekend Review. Coming up, how much time and energy do you spend thinking about food? It's called Food Noise. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, bringing you vital information to boost your health, your finances, and your rights. Find out more at carp.ca. How much time and energy do you spend thinking about food? Does it make you eat even if you already feel full? It's called Food Noise, and I talked with obesity specialist Dr. Sean Wharton about it. So the way I would define food noise, because I think it has a couple of different ways of thinking about this, is that when your brain is, is either craving food or is always thinking of food or thinking where your next meal will end up being from or what it will be, that is food noise. There's continual chatter. Some people call it chatter. Chatter in the brain that just dictates a eating behavior that the person doesn't necessarily want. Sometimes they want it, but, but it's just, it's a, it's um, a continual craving that occupies other brain space that you would otherwise want to use for other things. For the people who do have a pathologic um, type of con- condition where the food noise is causing a problem, it's causing them to not be able to connect with other people as well, not be able to do work properly, not be able to sleep and in, in, in a proper fashion, where it's really taking up mental real estate that is noticeable, noticeable to them, noticeable to other people, to the point that they may lie um, uh, about certain things, lie as to where they're going and go and, and grab food from a convenience store or say, I've got to drive this way home, when in fact, that's not the case. They're doing that because they need to go to a drive through because the chatter in their brain won't stop until it's fed. Whatever, what, and it's not just the amount of calories, but the specific kind of food. And then that chatter stops for a period of time, and it starts up a um, on a continual basis. So, how do you usually treat food noise? 
the best recognition is that food noise is obviously in the brain, so the best treatment is going to be brain-based treatment. So the initial brain-based treatment is is a cognitive behavioral therapy, so where you're doing a psychological um, uh, a intervention that is that that uh, that um, um, strengthens the executive lobe. So things like knowing when your vulnerable times are, knowing what other, um, knowing the aspects of love and and where that fits in in your in your world and how you can replace food chatter with other types of actual chatter. So that's the psychological way. And then as we've moved into the 20th century, we learned that medication can work in the brain to quiet or douse that food chatter. I was just reading that drugs like Ozempic, which I guess are semaglutides, uh, some people say that when they take them, the food noise disappears. Absolutely. I would absolutely agree with that's the mechanism of action as to how it works to decrease weight. It works in the hypothalamus, which is the physiologic area of the brain that says, I have hunger. So you decrease your sugar intake for a couple of hours after, you know, so it's getting near to dinner. The hypothalamus says, eat, hunger. But there's also another part of the brain called the mesolimbic, and that's the craving part of the brain, the hedonic part. That's controlled by dopamine and opioids, and that is where a lot of food chatter ends up coming from, that craving area. And these medications, such as semaglutide, work in the hypothalamus to decrease the hunger, but they also work in the mesolimbic area of the brain, that craving, hedonic area, and the, and the chatter goes down and is quieted, just like a hose from a fire, um, a fireman putting a hose in a fire and just douses that flame, keeps it nice and calm. How significant is that? The, the significance of the medication use in that area is, is huge. We did a study, I'm, I'm, I was the lead author on a study that looked at control of eating. So control of eating is a questionnaire that we ask people who have decreased, are decreasing their, 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 their own weight. They're taking in fewer calories. They're on a diet. And then half of the people are on a medication. They're on the semaglutide. The other half aren't. The people who weren't on the medication had lots of food chatter. They had cravings. And the liking and the wanting and the drive and the hunger and the hunting part. The people who were on the semaglutide didn't have that. They had much less hunger, much less cravings, and the hunt was, wasn't there as much. As a result, that was correlated with their decreased weight. So it matters in a significant way. A huge percentage of our population is considered obese. Can you uh, give me a better number and also what percentage of that population would uh, be afflicted with this food noise? In Canada, it's about 30% of the population are living with obesity. That is a BMI greater than 30. I don't like using BMI as, our, as, as what we, how we would call it, but we're just looking at size now. And um, uh, so that would be about 30% of um, people living in Canada. In other countries, it is higher. Other countries, it, it is lower. In America, it is, it is higher. So what percentage of those people have the food noise? And we don't exactly know, but to the level that it is a food uh, addiction, food addiction, where you're addicted to chemically 
derived food. You're not addicted to broccoli. You're addicted <laughs> to like things like things like chips that are chemically derived and drive this, those parts of the brain. That's probably about five to ten percent of the people living with obesity. But I would say the majority of the people have some degree of food noise. A hundred percent of them have some food noise and the intensities get higher and higher and higher until it tips over into food addiction. And that's about five to 10% of people. If you are struggling with, with, with food noise, the recognition is, is that, is that your condition matters and you matter. Whatever you have love in this world. This world cares about you, loves you enough to understand that, that if this is pathological for you, if it's a problem for you, then you deserve care. Dr. Sean Wharton, thanks so much. Absolutely. Thank you. That was obesity specialist Dr. Sean Wharton, medical director of the Wharton Medical Clinic. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Huddy, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.